Today, I am in a place of wood and stone, moss and water, statue and bell. A place where the spirit of stillness is built into the grain of the architecture, and where a community of dedicated beings gather to practice the way of the Buddha. By name, I am in the Olympia Zen Center for the first installment of the interview section of Modernist Monastery, a segment I have called Cloister Conversations. And it's hard to imagine a more appropriate first guest than the one in front of me. I'm here today with Genjo, head of practice here at the Olympia Zen Center. Genjo is an ordained Buddhist monk, born in America, trained in America, but also in Japan. In the States, he has been a monk in residence at both the Buddha Eye Temple in Oregon, and of course, now at the Olympia Zen Center. In other words, Genjo, at age 31, is a monk full-time. My own dealings with Genjo have revealed him to be an engaging speaker, an uncommonly knowledgeable commentator, and a personable guide. To me, Genjo reminds me most of two things. First, Genjo is like the sun, bright, open, and warm, shining indiscriminately. But also, Genjo, from my observation, is like a fish moving slightly with the current of the situation, expending only the effort that is needed, until the moment that a hand or hook might be about to grab him, and then he wriggles away. Like a fish, I've seen Genjo slip free from questions, and more importantly, questioners, that might seek to squeeze him or a topic, doctrine, or point of practice into losing its purposeful ambiguity. Today, I hope to see a little of both the fish and the sun. I'm Dean Delp. Welcome to Modernist Monastery, in episode one of Cloister Conversations. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me. It was absolutely my first choice. We met over, in brief, what is a shared love of meditation and the practice of it in, in all of its forms, and I would be remiss if I didn't explain to the, the listeners what a lovely environment that we are currently in. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you all can hear the sounds of a crackling fireplace that is not included as a technical effect that is a real iron stove it looks like would you describe to me the the stove that we're sitting next to i don't know much about it it's a real bona fide wood stove in front of a uh, brick fireplace um when i was touring uh the residence to see if this would be a fit for me to come and take up residence here uh, I, I exclaimed with joy that there was a, a wood fireplace, and the abbess said, "Oh, well, we don't we don't use that anymore." And I said, "Well, that might have to be a stipulation of me coming here, as that gets used." And she was like, "Oh, sure, of course, you can use it." So, mm-hmm. but really, we're in my residence here at 
Olympia Zen Center, the half of a duplex and uh, in the living room uh, surrounded by candles. That's one of my, fire is one of my great joys and uh, enjoying the warmth of the, the flames around us. And as using fire as a transition, one of the things that I think drew me to you in a, in a sort of kinship sense was that beyond meditation, we both have a shared love of alchemy and alchemical mm -hmm. imagery. And that's not particularly common, at least anymore, certainly in the West per se. I'm sure in the East it's, it's much more frequently conjured forward. But mm -hmm. as a warm-up, I, I wanted to ask you, what is it about the imagery of alchemy that for you, you find so useful? Because I've, I've heard you use that not just as examples between us, but mm. in the talks that I've seen you give to practitioners, the alchemical language is one that you frequent. Mm -hmm. For me, it's almost the, um, I love the language of al alchemy, but maybe the most important thing is the uh, deeper logos that I find hidden within the imagery which uh, all of the imagery is uh, craft-based. So it's about having a material and then uh, applying some kind of force, you know, whether that's striking or whether that's heating or whether that's um, drawing all the moisture off in different ways or pouring moisture on. And it dovetails so well with a concept in Buddhism, which I think is, is not so... What's right? The flavor isn't brought out of it as well as I wish it was. Mm. And that's the teaching of skillful means. And this idea that the Buddha, um, it's kind of hard to track down and identify, you know, what is the core Buddhist teaching? Because the Buddha taught many different things to many different kinds of people. And so he's a little bit slippery, a little bit fish-like in that way. Mm. So he said to some people, he said one thing and to other people, he said a different thing. And alchemy uh, takes this up at the beginning uh, because it's not abstract. Uh, you know, if someone were to say, how, how do you live your life to a Buddhist monk? Uh, they would probably ask, well, who are you? <laughs> you know, what's the material of, of your living and what's alive in your heart right now? And once we get that straight away, once we talk about the material, then we can talk about uh, what transformation could look like. But otherwise, an abstract, an abstract question of what's the meaning of life or how should I live? Uh, it, it doesn't hold any water. Um, mm. But then, you know, grabbing that metaphor, what's the shape of the vessel? Yeah. And now, now we're able to talk about water in a different way. It's shaped, it's alive. You know, maybe it's like the ocean or maybe it's like a cool pond or it's the glass of tea in front of me. Yes. So in this way, alchemy, um, it really brings out an essential quality that turns me back uh, to my own practice all the time and says I have to stay lively and engaged with what's the material in front of me. Mm. You know, it's interesting, you you gave an example there of someone asking, you know, well, what way should I live my life or what's the core Buddhist teaching and, and the question being, you know, who are you, mm. right? Something that I find so elegant and also so dynamic and forceful in a lot of Buddhist, I suppose, discourse is that oftentimes when I'm asked certain questions philosophically or theologically, sometimes I feel overwhelmed because what I want to say is, well, it would take me 30 minutes to explain to you why the mm. question you've asked doesn't even make sense, right? <laughs> does it, this doesn't, uh -huh. Why this doesn't even work. Uh -huh. um, but something that I love about the Buddhist discourse is that the, the Buddhist monks have gotten so good at hearing a question like that and instead of engaging in a 30-minute explanation of why the question doesn't work, mm. switching and asking 
the question back in such a way that arrests the listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's quite a, an elegant aspect of, of Zen discourse. And on that, I suppose, though the question is in one sense sophomoric, mm-hmm. what is Zen? Mm. Oh, there's so, so many layers to that uh, question. There's a very straightforward answer. Um, Zen is a collection of lineages that uh, have spread forth uh, coming from India and then into China, down into Vietnam uh, and other places in, in South Asia and traveling into Korea and also Japan from there. And there have been specific uh, people and monasteries who have been endeavoring a practice of Buddhism as it's moved from culture to culture uh, through uh, unbelievable changes in uh, geography and political situation and culture and language. I mean, the, the scope of that transition is just immense. And there have been people striving all the way through that. And through that striving, there have been forms and ways. You know, we would say there's a way that's been uh, attended to and taken care of uh, for uh, 2,500 years. And now uh, there are certain folks of us here in America and all around the world who have uh, seen something, uh, perhaps we could say, in those forms, in those shapes. Uh, But really, we've seen something about ourselves through those shapes that those shapes have allowed us to uh, glimpse something that we were not able to glimpse perhaps in our native uh, culture or religious milieu that we grew up with or other forms of seeking, and this way spoke to us. And so, simple way to answer it, it's a collection of forms uh, that bring out a flavor of, of the Buddha's teaching. Now, how do we talk about that flavor? Mm. How do we talk about, um, quote-unquote, an essence of Zen? In one sense, Zen is great at answering this question. It says, no essence. You don't get to find a core and uh, pick that up and walk away with it. However, uh, there are things we could point to. Uh, Like that question where someone asks the meaning of life and someone uh, responds back to you, well, who are you? You know, how do you look at uh, the ground of your life and stand up from there. So I would say uh, if there is something that these forms are endeavoring uh, to reveal to us, it's really our own mind, the own own shape of our being, uh, which we are, uh, which uh, amazingly, sort of fantastically, uh, we can actually miss in day-to-day living uh, without real purposeful Uh, intentive reflection. The forms of Zen are about this intentive reflection. And that's uh, reflected, (laughs) refracted, through uh, the forms of formal Zen practice, and I would say into uh, likely, or hopefully, the spirit that many practitioners are bringing out into their life uh, when they're not practicing formal Zen practice. Now, Genjo is your Dharma name. That is the name that you were given. And you are 31 years old. You're, you're an American. And you are currently at what you've described as sort of a, a journeyman level of monk. You, you live here in the Zen center. You wear the robes. How did that come to be? Mm. 
I've been told that I'm the youngest Soto Zen uh, monk in, in America who has completed their uh, novice training. Mm. So out of all the registered monks, I don't know how many there are, number of hundreds, uh, I'm the youngest one who's completed their training. And so, not fully ordained, not a novice. So we've sort of, I, I use the term journeyman. So my teacher said he considers me a Zen teacher. He's given me a teaching stick. Um, I wear a Buddhist robe, uh, a robe in our tradition, a Zen monk's robe. However, I don't have, I'm not allowed to wear a certain color. Sure. There are certain colors that are, that are off, off uh, limits for me right now. So how did that all come about? Um, it feels like over a long time and slowly uh, but surely, I started practicing 12 years ago or so, sort of lost uh, young man, uh, broken up with my partner, uh, my high school partner, went to university and realized that I was fairly codependent in the relationship, uh, like many young people really have to find out and most of us keep finding out for our entire life in romantic <laughs> relationships. Um, and it was really disturbing to me that I thought I loved this person. And in one sense, I loved her to the very best of my ability. But on another sense, I saw how I needed it. It was uh, more for me than uh, perhaps for her or other uh, beings in my life. So I started searching. And in one week, the word uh, Zen was said around me every day, every day for a week. Uh, you know, in just a casual, uh, colloquial sense. Oh, that's so Zen. Uh, they call them the Zen master. And uh, it sort of uh, penetrated my thick consciousness. And I asked, you know, what is that? I don't even know what that is. So I went and grabbed a couple books, and they were fairly esoteric. And uh, the one thing that really struck me was uh, it, the, the authors there were very skillful in not giving an answer. And they said, you have to sit and you have to face your own heart. That grabbed me and went to a monastery for a month after that. And they told me about uh, my teacher in Eugene. They said, oh, you came all this way, but actually there's a great teacher in your town. And pretty quickly, uh, I realized he was my guy. Uh, my heart uh, opened and I, I trusted him and he uh, made himself available uh, to meet me. So uh, after a number of years, I moved in after a number of years, I said I wanted to become a monk, and uh, I left for a year to continue uh, discerning, and after a year, uh, came back and began the process. It was about 25 years old, six years ago, and uh, from there, the ordination happens, and you enter novice training, and my teacher asks for five years, uh, where if you don't have another uh, any other work going, uh, you put everything else aside and you take that up as your full-time uh, endeavor and occupation. Mm. And I suppose I'll ask two questions. One, one serious, one not. I'll start with the not serious one. Is there a, a pamphlet or a brochure that's how to tell your parents that you've decided to become a Buddhist monk? <laughs> <laughs> if there is, it's drenched in tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah, it was, you know, for a long time, they didn't uh, quite understand. Uh, and they made very sweet attempts at understanding and trying to become close. You know, they called me grasshopper uh, for a good year. Uh, 
And, um, you know, they thought it was just a fad. They thought, how could this lazy schmuck of a human being um, take up this kind of discipline? Mm. And then, you know, it really stuck. And I, I stayed with it. And uh, I think if you asked them, they would say that they saw me become better through it. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd get home and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I love doing the dishes. <laughs> doing the dishes is like a zeny, wonderful thing. And yes. they were just like, what is that about? And, you know, wanting to be helpful and... Um, certain places of opening and uh, meeting that hadn't been present in me uh, before started to come out. So. Yes. And the, the much more serious question is, you know, I'm sure, perhaps not, but I'm sure that when you were younger, you know, middle school, elementary school age, the idea that you could be a monk was probably not very present. I mean, there's, there's not monks at career fairs, no. you know? Uh, and I think that that was at least... You know, perhaps that was never the case in, in America, but in, in even in Europe, right, the idea of being a monk or being part of this class or group of, of people that are theologically, philosophically, practitionally invested in a tradition mm -hmm. was much more present. Yeah. And so how you, you've answered in part, perhaps in full, how, what is the process like of becoming a monk i mean how does one go about that you mentioned i decided i'm going to be a monk and that took you to places in america it also took you to places in japan yeah you know it's always interesting when people um they'll ask how do i get involved at mm. a temple and you say well just come be here uh there's no there's no other answer really which i'm so happy for that that is our response um, because we're always, I think it's part of the conditioning of the suffering of many of our hearts is we're looking for um, a tool with which to meet our heart. Mm -hmm. We're looking for um, some kind of glove, some kind of system with which we can understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas this tradition says, look, we give you a seat and a mirror, <laughs> sit down, look in the mirror and you have humans uh, who are also in encountering their hearts on either side of you. And so in terms of this idea of becoming a monk, in one way, it's just so separate. Um, the very first core of it is uh, you must love the practice and that love will not look shiny. That love will look um, perhaps, you know, for me, maybe it looked most like desperation. It looked like... Um, knowing that I, I can't find another way to uh, save my heart <laughs> in a way that this can. And even though it's so hard at times, um, it was the thing uh, that appeared to me as most uh, trustworthy and mostly through my teacher. And so, so that's one part, is that the practice itself and really the community that you're in has to be the place where the fire's alive and you are willing to jump. Mm. In terms of the... Uh, Becoming a monk, many people will have that same driving core, but monkish life will not be for them. Uh, to become a monk, uh, in my own understanding and through what I've received as my teacher, is a willingness to take on um, a shape, uh, to put your body in the shape that allows other people to see and know and to receive that invitation. So that means to train um, so that we have in our bodies 
a deep understanding of the logos of uh, training, this, the Zen forms, and how they work and how they fit together, where their downfalls, and uh, to be able to make an offering of those to a community. That's what makes a monk in our tradition, not the heart with which you practice, but the way that uh, your life has uh, you know, come to you and your willingness and yearning to take on that aspect. And if you have that, then I think monk and, and clerical uh, ordination is the way for you, a uh, way forward for someone. Otherwise, uh, if you love the Dharma, great, practice and let it shine through your life uh, however uh, your life is shaped. Mm. Two notes as you mention monastic life and monastic practice. One, I think, is that the second barrier to entry in the minds of most people, again, at least Americans, to entering a life like that is first knowing that it's an option, right? Which we've sort of discussed. Mm -hmm. that, again, there's, there's not monks that are coming to career fairs at schools. You're not going to see flyers at your local community college that mm -hmm. says, you know, come, come to the Zendo, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not really I actually there. put one up the other day. Good for yeah, you. Just that's to, great. Just to get that in there. <laughs> I, and I, I think that's a, a, a very uh, laudable endeavor, mm -hmm. truly. But I think another barrier to entry that there is some degree of truth to and some degree of falsity about is the the constraints, which is a word I don't like to use, that, that goes along with that kind of rigid practice. I think mm -hmm. in a lot of people's minds, monasticism, whether it's in an Eastern or Western context, the, the kind of immediate things that come to people's mind are no alcohol, mm -hmm. no sex, no romantic love, mm -hmm. or, or marriage in that way, dietary restrictions, yeah. all of that sort of thing. And to some extent that's there, but I also know that specifically for Zen, and this was something I didn't know until you had sort of mentioned it to me, mm -hmm. that not all of those things are as present as perhaps they once were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in terms of those restrictions, um, for anyone becoming a monk, is you will uh, receive a few heaping spoonfuls of that uh, sense of restriction. And that, of course is really core to uh, the training and that reflection is uh, creating a vessel, so using alchemical language, where you feel the heat. So one way we can, I really like to imagine Zen practice, is like a stove. And uh, the black cast iron of the stove contains a heat that isn't uh, suitable for anywhere else in the home. You know, and it, it's also great uh, that it's at the hearth. Mm. right related to our word heart so i'll bracket that so those restrictions uh bring out the the fire and the intensity of mind uh that really uh we could use the word purify or trains us or um, has us encounter something about living this other aspect you're talking about um something i think you know, very interesting and uh count not intuitive to western thinking is an idea that's very prevalent in Japanese culture is the idea of a front side and a back side. So there's a front side of things where you're meeting people who are a little bit on your outside circle and you show a certain face. And when you're in your home with your family or close friends, you, you show your backside. And uh, all, many rules change in a way that I think would um, sort of freak out 
many Westerners and, you know, people would be called not truthful or inauthentic. Exactly. Living having a double face, but there it's totally natural um, to say, you know, yeah, like some people with some people I'm like this with other people I'm like this, which of course we also live here too. So I think that that idea has entered um, many, I can't speak for all traditions, but in, in Soto Zen, uh, that idea is there, that there's a time for the restriction, and it's so good and so important. And then some beings will be totally on fire with that, and uh, people will say, great, go for it. Live at the head monastery your entire life. We need people like that. Become basically the Pope of Soto Zen someday if you're stoked on that. Many people will not live that way. And so to go through uh, that kind of restriction at some point and then to have it uh, um, change and loosen is, is healthy and natural. One way it could be thought about it. So, yeah, you, you mentioned um, drinking alcohol and uh, having sex and having families. So in Japan, there's, um, I don't know if we could call it a system. Maybe we can call it a system. A system, yeah, perhaps. There's, there's, Lowercase s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a flow of... Uh, monkish beings there and some of them live at monasteries for their whole life and but the vast majority of them will become temple priests Uh, by that it means almost always having a wife and children and i say wife in particular because uh, almost all of the soto zen monks in japan are men although there are a growing number of women who are engaged in that and gender non-binary so uh these Monks, when they go home, uh, they will take over their uh, father's temple and they will, many of them, will drink and eat meat and have children (laughs) and continue the flow. And yet, um, many times a year, they will be traveling to places where they will put that, um, that monkish side forward again. And they will also uphold a sense of the archetype around their community for the most part and take care of funerals. That's one of the major, um, endeavors of of priests uh in our school is taking care of funeral rites for the community um yeah so there's this there's this two side and two sides and and you see that playing out here in the west as well that uh many monks uh they look uh super sharp and put together and you think oh perfect spitting image of monk and then uh later people are having a whiskey and enjoying a cigar together mm-hmm. and so there's this this incredible emphasis on normalcy and not trying to be too pure because i think there's also been an investigation in the school that if you uh reach for that purity too hard something breaks and so there's there's uh pains to take to ca- take care of that and to be very normal while also holding this powerful archetype at the same time yeah i i think a an illustration that was instructive for me and has served as a, a continual correcting measure in my thinking. And I think the Western mind in particular is more apt to scruple at regulation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because for, the, for most Westerners, regulation is associated with a kind of tyranny. Mm-hmm. Whether that's external or internal, you know, a code or a person, and that often strikes the Western mind. Like it, it raises red flags in most Western thinking. But something that I remind myself and was taught once is that restriction or or regulation it, boundaries even mm-hmm. is like a kite if you've ever flown one. 
And if you have, you know that you let the string out to let the kite go higher and higher and higher. But eventually you hit a point where you've run out of string. Mm. And the instinct of a child who's flying the kite is to say, well, I want the kite to go higher. If I cut the string, then the kite will continue to fly. It will go higher. This, this string is holding it down. But anyone that's flown a kite knows that what will happen if you cut the string is the kite will crash. And the very thing which appears to be holding the kite down and, and holding it back is, in fact, the thing that provides the tension that allows it to continue mm -hmm. flying mm -hmm. and enjoying that kind of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, in, in other words, it, it was said I, by a, a couple, it might be Aquinas, it could be Augustine, that obedience to just law is liberty, mm -hmm. which I think is such a great way of, of phrasing that. Mm -hmm. What's your daily routine like? What is, what is living as a monk day to day? What does that look like? Waking up in the morning, mm. going to bed at night, mm. going about the day. What is that like? Especially here in America, absent mm. from being part of a much grander structure that's far more ingrained. Mm. You know, you were, you were very right, I think, to mention that we are in a duplex, mm -hmm. right? And so <laughs> what is that like here? Yeah. In, one, in many ways, it's not ideal. <laughs> um, I've been traveling home to my, um, my home temple where I spent, you know, uh, a decade cooking um, and being with my teacher and being with community. And there's a, a very regular flow of practice there. Um, here, there's, you know, I wake up um, around 5.30 and we, or 5 o'clock and we have practice uh, at 6. We sit for a couple hours. We... Uh, have 45 minutes of chanting and then uh, mostly I'm left to my own devices after that on a regular day so that'll look like uh, temple maintenance to some degree um, a really um, sickening amount of time on the computer I would say mm. <laughs> for me and you know it's cooking for myself and I eat pretty simply um, then more work in the afternoon and uh, an afternoon service that I take up and then I try to be off after that though it doesn't always happen when you're the only person here and then there's some amount of programming in the evening so at least twice a week there's something happening either meditation or uh, offering a class what does a Buddhist monk do in his time off <laughs> this one reads <laughs> um, I like to get outside that's a great goal for me uh, I have a couple of friends in the neighborhood and I endeavor to hang out with their seven-year-old as much as I can and uh, I'm studying a little bit of Japanese and studying uh, Jungian psychology is something that uh, really fascinates me and turns my uh, mind in an important way. Me as well. Mm -hmm. Me as well. Yeah. One thing I also wanted to ask was that I think you bring up this interesting dichotomy of aloneness and togetherness. What is it that you think is so helpful about having a communitarian aspect to something like meditation that mm. seems so almost isolated, mm. so internal, so solitary. Yeah. Why gather in a group? I think that's something that, again, might dissuade Westerners that I, I think is something perhaps we can help work through and overcome here is this thought of why would I go and sit in a room with a bunch of other people to sit quietly by mm -hmm, myself. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to that? Yeah. And there's really a, a fundamental Zen teaching is that uh, 
there's no such thing as this idea we call aloneness and there's no such thing uh, we call uh, together that there's something um, more luminous and central and ever-present that uh, goes beyond both of those ideas so you know sitting there's a common refrain that uh, when all beings are present all the time and when I practice a single period of meditation uh, that period of Zazen practice is done together with all beings when I'm a room when I'm in a room full of tons of people that practice is still done with all beings and on the other side I sit alone with those all beings and so in this way uh, I think there's so much there's so much wisdom that's been cultivated over the, um, the centuries about how to bring out that quality. If we go sit quietly by ourselves, something for the level most beings are at spiritually will get off kilter. <laughs> and on the other side, if you just go hang out um, in a group and there's no place for something that looks like a solitary reflection, something will become off kilter. So there's a, a strong balance that's struck that's trying to illuminate the fact that there is just lively being showing up all the time. And uh, people are a pain in the butt and your own mind is a pain in the butt. And if you think you can simply pitch to one side or the other, uh, you're going to miss the mark. Yeah. Two last questions. If you were designing bait for the person out in the world that would attract them to this tradition, to this practice, to the practice of Zen, what three words would you choose to adorn that? Uh, gate wide open. And lastly... I think something that for me strikes me is so endearing, challenging, and beckoning about the tradition of Zen is that Zen masters and their practice, their demeanor, their speech are wickedly funny. <laughs> so often I find that I will read the, in the vast tradition of Zen stories mm -hmm. that exist, there is a pervasive humor, mm -hmm. a striking comedy that runs through much of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that for many people that might be surprising, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that if you pinch a Buddha, he may say, ouch, mm -hmm. right? I think is something mm -hmm. that is, is alien to a lot of thinkers mm -hmm. of, about this tradition. I was wondering as a final note to end this conversation, what is the place of humor in the Zen tradition? Mm -hmm. I get that question a lot um, because uh, many times we're in formal practice. Uh, uh, the outward face of the stove is very cold. <laughs> and uh, you have to find the laughter uh, yourself. <laughs> and the laughter is not separate from uh, a warm mind. And that, uh, you know, for me, we recently had a meditation retreat and I saw some geese uh, passing above and I was like, it was cold and frosty. And I was like, there's no way they're gonna wanna land in the frosty lake to relax. And then they just plunged right in. And there's this kind of, oh, 
wow, they're different from me. What a delight. <laughs> what a delight. And I think that kind of uh, spark of surprise and engagement that the world is always beckoning with all living beings, uh, whether externally or internally appearing in us, um, that laughter and surprise and delight is, is always present. Um, and it takes uh, very careful seeing to, um, to reveal it. And I gotta say one more thing, because I was so moved by your question about the hook. Um, what really uh, hit me in the end, which may have been the beginning, mm. <laughs> hard to say, but uh, all the books I was reading, they kept saying, uh, it's, don't just read about Zen. You have to sit quietly with your own heart and mind. And I was like, okay, okay, I will, I will. I'm going to monastery later. Okay, okay. And finally, it just hit me. I was like, no, you have to do it. So I, I was like, okay, I'll sit for 15 minutes. I set the timer up. And my legs, I was doing it all wrong, looking back. I didn't look at YouTube or anything. And I just sat there. And it was totally uh, miserable. I hated it. And finally, eventually, in all honesty, I was like, oh, I'm, I didn't set my timer wrong. It's been like 33 minutes, surely. And I looked down at my clock and it just went three, two, one. Beep, 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 beep. And it hit me that my mind is an awful place to be. And I think a part of me that's uh, stubborn and um, passionate said, I, I don't want to live in a life in which I don't want to be in my own being. And I uh, need to look and need to believe that this heart and this mind, uh, I can sit quietly with and be, have some kind of measure of ease and, and joy. And so I think for people, I think that is a huge hook that mostly we hear about giving things up but if I could give a message, maybe another three words, it'd be go for it, you know, really go for it. And that gate is wide open and it's much closer than you think it is. Thank you so much for engaging with me in this conversation. And for people who would like to hear more from Genjo, if you have found him to be as engaging and entertaining, certainly as I do, both Buddha Eye and Olympia Zen Center have YouTube channels, uh, and you can find some of Genjo's words there as well. And what a blessing it is to have the technology available to be able to sit at the feet of people from all traditions mm -hmm. and to have that so readily available to us. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dean. I'm Dean Delp, and this has been a Cloister Conversation with Genjo on the Modernist Monastery.